Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, and welcome to Headspace, where we bring together three contributors from this month's edition of Prospect Magazine and ask them, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark. And as the July edition of Prospect hits the stands, yet another big political shock sinks in. In place of the ubiquitously predicted Conservative landslide, the country gets used to another hung parliament with weak and wobbly government. It's another reminder that those stuck in the bubble don't have a clue about what's going on. So today we take a long step back from the Westminster shenanigans about coalitions of chaos and look instead at the malcontents who keep stunning the know-it-alls. There are the insecure workers and the disgruntled students who surge to Jeremy Corbyn, as we will discuss with Steve Richards, who spent recent months writing about the rise of the outsider. There are the hard-pressed patriots whom Theresa May presumed she'd got in the bag, only to discover that some had minds of their own, something Rachel Sylvester of The Times is going to help us with. I'm not sure she really knows why she wants to be Prime Minister. So in the campaign, there was this sense underlying the whole thing as why, other than party political reasons to increase your majority, have you called this election? And actually, I'm not really sure we know any more about why she wants to be Prime Minister, what she wants to do with the country, what really is underlying her political beliefs. But before we get into any of that, with Wimbledon upon us, let us start with a little tennis. Because, as the documentary maker David Berry has written for us, there was a long lost time when those who might today be labelled the left behinds did not channel their indignation into protest politics, but into starting socialist tennis clubs. So then, David... Tell us about that. I think when it started in Reading with these two lovely characters, Ivy Noyes and uh, um, um, Richard Deakin, they just got a sense that they wanted to do more than um, than simply go to political meetings. And they weren't particularly into football or, or cricket, the other the other kind of sports. And they saw no reason why they shouldn't be um, a way in which they could play tennis with their with, the, with their with their comrades, basically. So they set up their own tennis club. And in as part of the the Labour Reading Labour Party um, sports movement, and then it suddenly spread. There were more. There, it seemed to be at just about the same time. Other people um, got into tennis, and they all felt they should be uh, part of the Labour Party rather than trying to go along to the traditional tennis clubs, which were at the time very very exclusive. You just couldn't get in if you were if you were kind of from um, a blue collar job as opposed to a white collar job. And throughout the 30s, it developed in kind of uh, almost uh, parallel to the ordinary tennis that was going on in Britain. Uh, there were these traditional clubs that were very snooty, very exclusive. 
Uh, and then there's the game that's becoming increasingly a high-performance sport and a, and a spectator sport. And then there are all these other things going on, little uh, people playing on public courts, there are minors uh, leagues, there are railway workers leagues, and there are these socialist tennis clubs, which came together in this strange kind of thing called the National Workers Sports Tournament, which got christened as Workers Wimbledon. And that's all because of this other guy called George Elton, who was uh, um, a kind of frustrated politician and was uh, a trade union official for a very long time. But it was really, but his passion was sport, and his his particular kind of uh, expertise was in tennis. And he just gave the whole thing a marketing flair. He came up with the term "workers' Wimbledon." He talked to the press and really hyped it up. And gradually, uh, it became a place where sort of um, anybody could go along and play in, in the tournament. And got, and but also got it to a reasonable good standard as well. So that lasted throughout the thirties. Rachel, it's a remarkable story. It's a story that David takes from Reading, where they set up a tennis club. In the end, all the way to the All England Club. One of the cliches of the year is this idea of the left behinds. Do you think it's because there's not more of that social energy, social entrepreneurship that people do feel so left behind? David's talking about people just feeling fed up so they set up a tennis club in the past. I think what's fascinating is sport is a lot about identity. And we're hearing a lot now about identity politics. But if you think of the football club, or in this case, the tennis club, could be rugby, or in some areas, bowls, there's a sense in which people come together and they have a, a collective identity, which gives them something beyond the individual. And that's what we seem people seem to be looking for in politics at the moment as well. I think Jeremy Corbyn's very much tapped into that. And Theresa May's tried to reposition the Conservatives as the party of the workers. But there is something Something that sport has done. I know uh, my children play in local grassroots football clubs, and there's very much a sense where that really does cut across class divides, educational income divides, and you have all kinds of kids just playing together, and that's a great kind of enabler, if you like. And, and, and you think that doesn't connect though with party politics in the way that David's saying it well, maybe I did in the people 30s. Are, people are looking for it in politics now. You saw that with the rise of UKIP and then with the rise of Jeremy Corbyn. So there's a yearning there um, that I think the political parties could tap into if they got their act together. But there's also something about longevity in politics. I mean, if you're going to be a member of a political party or so, uh, you can't just do politics all the time. I mean, there was that wonderful quote from Jeremy Corbyn's first wife when he said, why did their marriage split up? And she said, well, I shared all of Jeremy's politics, but I just couldn't face on Saturday night going to another meeting mm. uh, after going to meetings Monday to Friday. And I think a lot of people um, get the idea if they're going to be a member of a political party for more than a few years, you need other things. You need to connect with people in different kinds of ways. And I think the tennis you know, clubs in particular, but also the whole workers' sports movement, allowed people in the Labour Party to think about a lifetime in which they shared things with other people. And it wasn't just about politics, it was about culture and sport. And I think maybe Corbyn and maybe um, the momentum could do a similar thing, really, because if they're going to keep people uh, mm. political, if they're going to keep people beyond this flurry of youth, if you like, to remain Labour for the next 10 or 20 years, they can just need to do more than have more meetings. Steve, um, uh, one thing about tennis is, unlike, say, football, there's not a kind of way of doing, you know, using jumpers to make the goalposts. You do need a club. Um, Momentum's impressed quite a lot of people with its organising efforts. Can you think of things it could do to um, cement some kind of hold on non-political obsessives? Well, tennis is a good example. You say it needs um, a club, but it doesn't have to be one of these expensive elitist clubs where you have to spend thousands of pounds a year becoming 
a member and I, I didn't know about the story and find it, it fascinating because like Rachel, I feel, I mean, you read all the time and did read in the 80s and 90s that this was the era of the individual and this was re- reflected in politics where people like Blair and Brown were too scared to speak of collective experiences. They would use euphemisms to avoid any reference to a mediating agency bringing people together. I remember when Brown used to talk about the state, he would refer to it as the public realm because he was too scared to utter any word that reeked of some sort of collective enterprise. But while they were becoming outdated in their neurosis, this hunger was growing up for activities that bring people together. I'm conscious of it at football matches. I go to Spurs and people don't know each other from different backgrounds are hugging each other irrationally when some multi-millionaire scores a goal. (laughs) But the goal scoring is just the excuse for the hugging because people need to feel a sense of belonging at a time when everything is so fractured and that was in a very different context the case in the 1930s and is absolutely the case now and i think explains the way politics is changing as well there is a hunger for mediating agencies to connect people in all kinds of different ways why is it that the thing sort of unraveled in the 1940s early 50s which we often think of as the labor party's high noon, an egalitarian age. It took a long time to think about why it went, really. But after the war, something changed in, 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 in how the Labour Party saw, saw sport and how the Labour Party saw recreation. See, when you look at the journals, suddenly there's no reference to sport after 1945. It was as if things had got very serious. Joyless kind of Fabian... Well, they wanted it. I mean, you know, there were real problems and real issues that need to be sorted out. And it suddenly became clear that they were actually also going to get into power as well. And its members were there simply to make sure that people got elected. They were about power. All those mm. things about culture and sport suddenly kind of suddenly moved off the agenda. But the second thing that happened in tennis and also in other sports um, is that the clubs start, had also been affected by that sort of strange feeling of being together in the war and actually wanted to reach out to other people so that the people that were excluded in the 30s, the working class and um, Labour Party movement people, suddenly found a little niche in the ordinary tennis clubs. And that's really what kind of um, uh, sort of um, run, made the movement run out of steam. I think that's a really interesting point there because I, I think the, the part, political parties now have almost got trapped in that sort of, they're almost like the big elite old-fashioned tennis clubs, if you like, aren't they? And they demand this kind of unthinking loyalty they sort of you've got to sign up for your life you've got to give you know go to endless meetings people talk about it like a sort of football club there's no sense of you're buying into a set of values and I think what people are craving is that sense of the the movement and the allegiances that's fun but it's also about the values so it's not that you're kind of blindly signing up to something in a very old-fashioned way it's that you're kind of involved and I think that's what uh, as Steve was saying that's what momentum has tapped into very successfully. Well, moving on, much like those organisers of Workers Wimbledon who found their way to the real courts of Wimbledon proper, the socialist movement of today, led by Jeremy Corbyn, could scarcely believe their own success in the June elections. Steve, um, you've been looking into the way that Corbyn defied the pollsters, the media and those within his party to achieve an unprecedented swing to Labour. Yeah, well, I mean, coincidentally, because obviously I had no idea what was going to happen in this election, I've I've been writing a book anyway on 
the rise of the outsiders and looking more, I mean, the, the reason why the outsiders rise are fairly obvious. But what's more interesting is the way that the mainstream parties, once so robust and formidable, have failed totally to deal with the financial crash of 2008 and its implications, uh, epoch-changing implications, and has allowed space for quite often weak outsiders to flourish, very vulnerable, fragile political forces and movements. And therefore, the surprise is that we're surprised every time this happens. And in the case of Corbyn, there were clues all over the place that none of us followed, that something like this could well happen. One of them being, for example, the, the debate itself. If you, if you follow a debate, it gives you a sense of where political direction is heading. And the election debate preceding that hung parliament sensational result moved leftwards. Uh, objectively, it was a leftward shift from the 2015 and 2010 campaigns with its relentless focus on the deficits of smaller state. It was much more of a shift from the 1997 Labour landslide win, where Blair and Brown promised to stick to Tory spending plans, not to put up income tax. Compare all of that with the campaign where there was a debate about how you fund social care, how you pay for the NHS. There was no pledge even from the Tories to stick to no tax rises. It, the, the movement in that debate was leftwards, and that was one of many clues, along with all the freakish results around the Western world that should have prepared us for this. The fact that it didn't is interesting, but we should have been prepared and we shouldn't have been remotely surprised. Rachel, um, Steve talks there about kind of the wider point of the um, uh, outsider doing very well, you know, so in a sense, Brexit was an outsider movement, the Prime Minister was against it, Trump certainly was an outsider as far as the Republican mainstream was concerned, and we've seen parties like Syriza doing very well in Greece. Do you think Jeremy Corbyn's surge was more to do with the fact that he was the guy everyone had written off, he was the outsider, than it was to do with anything else? Yeah, I think it's very interesting whether people are actually voting for his policies or for him as the kind of anti-political candidate. And Steve, in his piece for Prospect, writes about how it's sort of a sign that the centre is over. I'm not completely sure that that's necessarily true because you had Labour candidates going around saying, look, don't worry, vote for me. Jeremy Corbyn's not going to be prime minister. So there was a mixture of people voting for their local candidate who often had a completely different political view. And a lot of the younger people voting for Jeremy Corbyn as, as a sort of symbol of something different. I think Steve's absolutely right. It was his outsider status that was so appealing rather than necessarily individual policies, although I think that's not necessarily true in terms of tuition fees. But, you know, I'm not sure people were voting for nationalisation of the railways. Uh, his la latest one would be um, seizing properties in Kensington and Chelsea or whatever. Uh, it, they, they were voting for a sense of the status quo isn't working for us. We've had, you know, living standards for Falling, real incomes falling for the first time in a long time this year. And it's this sense that the status quo isn't working. Let's shake things up. Almost anyone's different who's not part of the kind of mainstream. I, thought, I mean, for me, it was also the other aspect to it was he also seemed to, seemed to come across as an incredibly decent politician. He's the kind of person, for once, that you could go down and have a glass of wine with if he drinks wine, which I don't think he does very much. Very rarely, I think. Exactly. But he had that, he had that decency that came across compared to the, the sort of awkward politicians, I think, as Rachel points out in her piece, you know, um, May is a lot like Brown in that respect. Or, the, or these, or 
Miliband or these sort of or these slick uh, people before, like Blair and and Cameron. I mean, somehow Corbyn represented some different kinds of values. I'm not saying he mm. did, but that's how he came across to people. Sort of authenticity, if you a, like. a kind of decency, a sort of. Um, and the one thing he, the only moment I think he got wrong the campaign, which is a brilliant campaign by him, was when he started stumbling at Woman's Hour, and he didn't know the figure, and he kind of started trying to pretend that he should have known it. When in fact, if he had just said. I haven't got the faintest idea. People would have really loved that. I haven't that, got that, that to hand. Yeah. Exactly. Could I just come in on uh, Rachel's point about the centre ground? You see, I don't know any longer what that means. It was clear. Blair defined it in 1997 with a clarity. You could agree or disagree with it, but there was a clarity about it. Now, uh, I spoke, as Rachel did, to the so-called or self-described centrist Labour MPs, and you would get this very knowing, oh, it's a disaster, he's a disaster, what a disaster, as if these were titanic figures, um, you know, preparing for doom. And then you would sort of gently say, yeah, well, I, I take you from, uh, so, so what would you do if you, you know, what would you put forward? And very soon it would lapse into vacuous waffle. These apparent titanic figures really don't have a clue what they mean by being centrist, in inverted commas. It's people like Blair who've got language, if, if I think now way behind the times waffles about the need to be at the cutting edge and all these things it gets people nowhere and so i think the center as a term is of no use until it's clear what people mean by that i don't think the term modernize is of any use until people explain what they mean by modernization so these are ubiquitous adjectives or terms used in politics and I then ask, how does that raise the money for elderly care or the NHS? And it all seems to fall apart. But Steve, do you think people are voting for Corbyn's programme and the sort of multi-billion pound spending pledges, which actually I don't think weren't really tested during the campaign? Or were they voting? I, I felt they were voting more for a kind of optimistic message of change. Um, the Conservatives presented a very kind of project fear campaign again they didn't really have a a positive message and it was sort of it was hope and change versus technocracy and doom and gloom and fear and they were voting for that weren't they rather than for specifically which was I think um, we would probably all agree was a kind of more left-wing program than has been presented recently. It was certainly to the left of what's been presented recently but um, as I argue in the prospect article if you look at the manifestos that Wilson fought elections on in the 60s and 70s, in some respects he was to the left, well certainly the manifestos were to the left of Corbyn's. Yeah, I agree with all of you that it was partly about authenticity and a sense of integrity, but I think there was another factor in this, and that goes back to our talk about tennis, (laughs) in that I think that when the manifesto was leaked, the Labour manifesto, I assume because, like all of us, we're conditioned to a certain choreography that this was a catastrophe. Just the leak in itself mm. would convey an amateurish incompetence. Instead, the polls started shifting. <laughs> so I don't know. I haven't spoken to these all these voters who, who turned out unexpectedly from our perspectives. But I would guess that part of it was this sense of here was an argument that at least tries to connect the world of politics with our lives. Uh, Students whose first contact with the state is to be turned into people with huge debts found an argument 
that obviously resonated with them. Those worried about the NHS found an argument that here were people trying to connect politics and government to a period in which their lives have been fractured. Now, I don't know that because I haven't spoken to all these people who turned out. But my guess, I was surprised that the manifesto seemed to trigger a trend towards Labour after that chaotic, shambolic launch. There was something, Rachel, wasn't there, just in the, in the simplicity of the messages. And here, in this sense only, I think there's an echo of Trump who'd say, build a wall you know rather than saying let's get rid of exclusivity contracts and zero hour contracts Corbyn would say let's ban zero hour contracts let's have a 10 pound an hour minimum wage rather than some commission that's going to take some worthies away and set it at a percentage of median income and so just making the policies simple means that there's a much higher chance that people will notice what those policies are yeah I, I spoke to one of the Miliband team who helped with the manifesto at the last election and they would spend hours and hours and hours agonizing about whether they could promise to you know increase the minimum wage from nine pounds an hour to nine pounds 15 or whatever you know but Corbyn just cut through all that it was absolutely you know there was no worry about how much anything was going to cost it was just clear simple you know but I, I just wonder whether if people actually thought there had been a chance during the campaign that he was likely to get into number 10, whether that would have changed the nature of the debate and actually the spending commitments would have been tested more rigorously. What do you think, David? I, I suppose I, I think that some of us need to reappraise our understanding of who momentum is and thinking there's that there's a lot more non-obsessives in, in those numbers, those swollen Labour membership numbers than, than, than people were thinking before. Well, I certainly agree with Rachel. I think there's a vanguardist element to to the Corbyns, or, or and certainly to McDonald and people around that. That's where that's where they've come from. That kind of notion, that strange Marxist idea of forced consciousness. They do really believe that most people don't really know what's good for them, and in the end, you know, they will adopt that that approach. And the danger about that is that they miss all those reasons why a lot of young people, including my daughter and all her friends, are moving to to momentum. They that John Lennon feel good kind of. Um, a sort of uh, impulse or so, and they don't know how to how to connect with that. And one of the things that, uh, that stood out for me about the manifesto, I don't know if Steve would agree with about this, is that it didn't seem that radical, really, uh, when you actually read it. I take Rachel's point about costings, but where was the commitment to taxing well, people like us? I mean, that, you know, they actually missed the point of saying if we if we are going to really deal with social care, you have to start taxing people that are on the medium incomes. Well, let's take this chance seamlessly to seg on to the next section of the discussion, because however well Labour did in this election, it is settling back into its role as the official opposition. It's the Conservatives who are dealing with terrorism, Brexit and much more besides in office. But shorn of their majority in office perhaps without power. Just two months ago, Rachel, many of us thought that May looked unstoppable. But um, you've long thought there's something about her that's a bit brittle that seems to have caught up with her in this campaign. Yes, I I wrote in the piece for Prospect that an election campaign is a bit like an x-ray into a kind of leader's soul and it exposes the bones, gets to the real bones of a politician. And I think what you saw in the election campaign, which I think everyone would agree went spectacularly badly for Theresa May, was her true character that has been apparent really for some time. 
so there was a kind of a very closed circle making policy, a lack of um, willingness to consult, which is what led to the problems on the social care. You know, even cabinet ministers who were completely involved in that policy weren't consulted about it, were only told about it the day before, we now find. If Nick Timothy, the chief of staff, had talked to people like Jeremy Hunt or Sarah Wollaston, the Conservative chairman of the Health Select Committee, they would have explained that this policy just mm. doesn't work, mm. you know, that it doesn't deal with the fundamental problem that social care is a lottery. So it, then there was the kind of brittleness in the limelight that Theresa May behaved as if she didn't really like the voters. She didn't want to make her case or make a pitch. You know, she started with this slogan of strong and stable, a kind of personality cult, and she ended up literally hiding behind the sofa in the television <laughs> leaders debate, not wanting to put her pitch. And then there, I think the most important thing was that I'm not sure she really knows why she wants to be Prime Minister. So in the campaign, there was a sense underlying the whole thing as why, other than party political reasons to increase your majority, do, have you called this election? And actually, I'm not really sure we know any more about why she wants to be Prime Minister, what she wants to do with the country, what really is underlying her political beliefs. And I spoke to one former Conservative cabinet minister who said it's a bit like Gordon Brown. You know, he was desperate to get to number 10, but when he got there, you know, he didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty damning um, stuff, um, Steve. But um, we need to remember, don't we, that like she also got really quite a lot of votes. I think it was 43 point something percent. And I looked it up and to the decimal place, it was the same proportion that Margaret Thatcher got in 1983 when she had her great landslide. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, it, it, it shows how um, prisms form and, and it's very hard to move them. I mean, I take a slightly counterintuitive view. I completely agree with Rachel about the social care policy. But in a way, that was, and it was one of its many problems. It was slightly at odds with the spirit of a lot of that manifesto, which I found quite interesting. Uh, probably the only person in the United Kingdom still half defending that manifesto. <laughs> I mean, the whole section about the role of government, which Nick Timothy has been promoting since, well, I put it in the past tense now, he's, he's gone is very interesting. And it, it was part of what I described earlier as the sort of leftward shift of the whole debate in this campaign. And I think even though she's had to get rid of him, and she will be gone at some point, any Tory prime minister will have to embrace that argument in some form or other, because they're now going to have to engage with the young vote who are coming out to vote. They're going to have to face the demands on social care and the NHS. And so the role of government, which at least Nick Timothy tried to address, was in that manifesto and won't, I think, go away. But it was utterly incongruous. Politics is partly musical and it was so discordant. This shy, awkward public performer saying, here is my manifesto and being thrown into a sort of presidential campaign, which he was obviously wholly unsuited for. Steve saying that those big underlying dilemmas, generation gap and so on, haven't gone away and that the Conservative Party won't be in really winning form until it can grapple with them. But isn't the problem, as often when political parties suffer defeat, that everyone's going to take their own message? Will the Tories now be able to knock their heads together and agree on a more coherent way to tackle some of those problems that Theresa May, to be fair to her, was trying to mm. deal with or Nick Timothy was trying to deal with? I think what 
Theresa May has understood is that the Conservatives' brand problem isn't just about the kind of socially liberal version of modernisation that David Cameron... So David Cameron tried to modernise the Conservatives' party by hugging huskies, introducing legislation on gay marriage. Theresa May has taken the view that the real problem is it's seen as the party of the rich. So she's talked about being the party of the workers. And I thought, I agree with Steve, the most interesting thing about what was dubbed the dementia tax was that conservatives were trying to address this whole intergenerational unfairness issue. And and that, that is incredibly important. But the problem is those are very controversial things to do and when a party and the party the conservative party all parties are completely divided on them and i think within the tory party you have a strain that would say englishman say on that one for example englishman's home is his castle it would be englishman not englishwoman um you know uh wealth opportunities should be handed down through the generations along with tradition and history and then there's theresa may on nick timothy are trying to upend that and say no we all everyone should start equally and assets should be distributed and that tension hasn't been resolved Mm. and you saw it as well in her on the one hand she championed grammar schools and fox hunting it was a very kind of retro looking Mm. thing but on the other hand it was um, more powers for workers in companies and a kind of slightly more modern approach dealing with the kind of uh, uber economy so it was a kind of all these dilemmas for the Tory party just weren't resolved and I think it's going to be incredibly difficult now when they've got a very weak leader and a very small well, minor, uh, no majority. I think it's an interesting question, isn't it, David? Like, if you're trying to appeal, as it seems Theresa May was post-referendum, to the left behind, how far can you indulge in bring backery? You know, like how far behind can you look for the sake of the left behinds, and they'll they'll believe you? Because I think one problem with the manifesto is there was a lot of rhetoric about saying that unfettered markets have got out of hand and so on, and something needed to be done. But the something was left pretty unclear. I think there probably was. I mean, the, the, thing, the thing about manifestos is that uh, I don't read manifestos. I'm sure Rachel and, and Steve does. I don't think most voters read them. And uh, as Rachel pointed out, you know, she chose her symbols very, very badly. I mean, grammar schools and fox hunting were terrible symbols for what was actually quite interesting underneath. You know, I, I would add to what Rachel was saying, the kind of attempt to destroy that Cameron sort of Blair old boy network, which was really rooting through. I mean, there was something about May which came across as very appealing. You know, she was outside that and she had a certain morality about her which indicated a different kind of politics but all that was lost in in, in how she came across and for most voters and including me I think actually symbols and how you come across are incredibly important we should just dwell for a moment on the on the Grenfell um, Tower tragedy in um, West London Steve she's been caught short on symbolism there again I have to admit I feel a little sympathy for her because I'm not sure like a much more emotional emotive prime minister talking about this would do all that much good I mean if if what she says is true and she's trying to um, marshal um, resources for the response then um, maybe that's more useful than than coming out and and, and venting an outpouring of grief or whatever it is I agree and I think it is you know I was referring earlier to how a prism is in place now so you mentioning that she did as well as Margaret Thatcher in 83 just jars because it's not part of the way she is seen and I suspected that awful fire had happened two months ago and the very same images were broadcast to us all. A lot of people would be saying she's prime ministerial, uh, she's getting on with the job of sorting out this nightmare and Jeremy Corbyn is milking it outrageously for political 
ends. But because we are seeing politics through that election result, she is weak, hopeless, incapable of engaging with people, and he is wholly empathic. And, and that is just the trap she is now in. And it's very difficult when... Uh, view is formed. I mean, she enjoyed the alternative view, which was equally false in many respects of authoritative omnipotence. And I'm afraid now, whatever she does, I think it's going to happen with Brexit as well. She'll be seen as weak and hopeless and incapable of guiding the country through the torrents. An interesting note on which to draw this discussion to a close, because that is it for Headspace this month. My thanks to Rachel Sylvester, David Berry and Steve Richards. The July edition of the magazine features all of their full essays and more besides, including Sam Tannenhouse on why we need to worry about the possibility of President Pence, the philosopher Simon Blackburn on why post-truth is not such a new thing, and Joanna Burke on the link between surgeons and psychopaths. You can pick it up in the shops, but even better, if you've enjoyed the discussion, visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and hit subscribe. You know you want to. I'm Tom Clark. The producer was Matt Hill at Rethink Audio, and we'll see you again next time. Goodbye, and thanks very much indeed for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.